When we are looking for solutions for the COVID-19 pandemic, there are some important lessons from the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918. There seem to be three key components of the treatment. The plant-based diet, bed rest, and hydrotherapy as a way of handling the fever. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. And I'm so glad that you're here, because today's show, I believe, is going to be fascinating. Doctors Neil Barnard and Hannah Kaliova will be back to join me, and they are going to be answering your questions. So many of you have sent them in since this pandemic began, and now we are going to do our best to get you some answers during this time of confusion, give you a little bit of clarity. And Dr. Barnard and I are also going to be discussing disturbing recent unconfirmed reports that these exotic animal markets where the current COVID-19 virus is believed to have originated, well, they are reportedly already reopening after being shut down when the virus first began to spread. What lessons can be learned here? Because if you think back to 2003 and the SARS pandemic, it's like this is the exact same scenario 17 years later. So he and I will be discussing that. And then you're also going to be hearing about some very interesting research from Dr. Kaliova. And this research dates back more than a century. We're talking all the way back to the 1918 H1N1 pandemic. Now, Dr. Kaliova will be delving into all of the details. But I want to share with you first this headline that was published in a newspaper regarding this research she will be presenting. Headline was, 120 exposed, 90 patients, no deaths, none, very sick. That is an interesting headline to say the least, especially given how deadly that pandemic actually was. So what have we learned about nutrition from that? What have we known for more than a century? Dr. Kaliova will be presenting those details. And Dr. Barnard will be talking about when we can expect this current COVID-19 pandemic to peak throughout the U.S. And perhaps most importantly, he will outline how dramatically a person's health can improve by changing their diet before that peak happens. What can happen with your health in a short amount of time? Dr. Neil Barnard, welcome back to the show. Thank you so very much for taking the time, my friend. Well, thank you, Chuck. It's great to be with you today. It, I'm so thrilled that you're here, and you, we are doing this at an absolutely critical time. I wanted to start by asking you about reports. We've seen a smattering of reports, unconfirmed, uh, out of China that the exotic meat markets, these so-called wet markets, where the coronavirus 
is believed to have originated. They were shut down, but now these alleged reports are saying that they are reopening. That has to be alarming. Um, very alarming. Uh, for people who are, um, have just been kind of on the tail end of this, um, the uh, coronavirus that is now uh, the, the pandemic uh, presumably originated in a live animal market. It was an animal virus that humans never would have come into contact with, except you take a bat and you put several bats into a cage. And then if they are carrying the virus in, they can transmit it to other animals and eventually to humans, where a couple of things will happen. One is that its ability to cause disease can be worse, and its ability to be transmitted from one person to another can gradually worsen as the virus gradually mutates. We believe that's what's happened. So now we've ended up with a virus that is easily transmitted from one person to another person, and its ability to cause uh, death and disease is uh, obviously what's uh, headlines every single day. Um, these live animal markets uh, were the source of this virus, and they've been the source of other viruses too over time. Uh, they were shut down. And there are news reports now which are unconfirmed saying that they are back open. And, and the reason for that, the, the reason they are presumably back open is that China seems to have turned the corner. Uh, the virus is now viewed as more of a Western disease. And so people in China are concerned if Westerners bring it back to them. But domestically, they uh, apparently are saying that they feel they've conquered it. They've come out the other side. So bring back the live markets. Um, as I say, these, uh, these reports are unconfirmed, but it, we've, we've seen very worrisome signs that they... Um, that, that this is happening. Um, this is compounded by the fact that we have uh, the same kind of wet market um, here in the United States, uh, particularly for poultry, um, live chickens, which have been of concern for a long time with regard to influenza A, but it's a great concern to me because once you have the coronavirus here um, and you have other viruses in live animals, you don't want them to be sharing genetic material, making uh, an even more um, virulent strain. Uh, I fear that's what's happening. Uh, that's what's going to happen. These live markets have to shut down. Rather than opening them up in China, they ought to be shut down here. And here's what particularly is of concern to me is, you know, we've had Dr. Jia Zhu on the podcast in recent weeks twice, and he's been in Beijing this in, for this entire ordeal, is not yet able to make it back to the States. And he and I were discussing the fact that these markets had been flat out outlawed. They had been banned in the national uh, legislature. And he honestly, in his heart of hearts, not more than a week and a half ago, Dr. Barnard told me that he thought that they had finally turned a corner there. You already used that phrase with the virus, but he thought that they had turned a corner with realizing that these markets could pose such a health hazard. And now here we are 10 or 14 days into the future and they're back open. That to me is, is of particular concern. Um, it remains to be seen, but there's, there's huge economic pressure to reopen them. As, as a matter of fact, there was a lot of pressure to maintain them at the time. Uh, there, China has not always had the economic relative prosperity that it has enjoyed over the past couple of years. Prior to that, there was uh, quite a substantial amount of, of real poverty um, that has changed. And part of it, part of the government's investment was in animal-based agriculture, including products that are sold at these live markets, which, are, which were quite widespread. So there's tr uh, tremendous economic pressure to, have, to bring them back. Um, I, like you, have been under the assumption that this has got to be it, um, but uh, stay tuned. I think we first need to confirm these reports, and then obviously we need international action um, harmonizing. And, and, and I don't want us only to cast aspersions against our Chinese 
um, uh, colleagues and friends, um, we should also get rid of the same markets here if we're going to ask other countries to do the same. Right. And I know that that's something that we have been working very hard on uh, here at the Physicians Committee is not just markets like this, but uh, animal testing and labs and things like that. But the last point, Dr. Barnard, that I want to make on this topic is that this belief that the coronavirus originated in a market like this. This isn't new to 2019 when this first popped up on the radar. You can go back to 2003 and the SARS epidemic, the SARS pandemic, and it was the exact same origin where everything began in the, you know, in, in a very similar market. I, I don't even know where to go from there. At what point do no, we no. really... Learn. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and, and that wasn't the beginning of it. Back then, the, the principal uh, hypothesis for the origin of the 1918 uh, H1N1 influenza outbreak, called the so-called Spanish flu, um, was, did not originate in Spain. Uh, it originated in, in uh, live animal markets. Um, that's what we believe. And, and again, it's, it's, a, it's a simple transmission. You have a virus that doesn't cause a lot of disease in a bird, a duck. And the duck lights uh, on the ground near um, where some domesticated poultry are feeding in somebody's backyard in China or Vietnam or somewhere else, um, where they it's quite easy for wild animal wild birds to mix with the domesticated birds. Um, the virus passes into the domesticated birds. Um, it can eventually pass into the humans who are tending that flock, and then from them uh, from them to their families to the other villagers nearby, then to the bigger city, and it just spreads out from there. And if the um, transmissibility it becomes um, uh, facilitated, which it can by genetic mutations, so that it, instead of it being really hard for a human to get an animal virus, it becomes genetically easier and easier to transmit, then you have a situation, which is what we have now with coronavirus. That was the situation we had uh, 102 years ago with, <laughs> with the influenza A. Um, and we and we we now put up with it every every single year. Influenza A keeps coming around in a slightly new version, and the people making vaccines are trying to guess which uh, which strains it will be so they can make the right vaccine. They're never entirely right. Uh, we would never have had this problem if people we believe if people did not have flocks of birds out or these factory farms of birds that we have now in the U.S. that can serve as sort of a cauldron where viruses um, mutate. And can you talk a little bit about some of the initiatives that we have been working on as far as getting animals off of the plate, which inevitably would minimize the the demand for markets like this, some of the efforts that we're making and how people can get involved in helping us out? Oh, well, well actually, th- thank you. You know, we've, we've been doing this for for 35 years, um, really for a different reason. It, it was, we were trying to help people who had heart disease, uh, diabetes, weight problems, hypertension, cancer, um, to improve their diets. Because it had been thought that diet was a rather modest force in your life. Um, And diabetes was just something you would get, or hypertension or heart disease was caused by old age. But as time has gone on, we've now realized that diet is 80% of this. Um, In other words, if you have hypertension, it's not a lisinopril deficiency. You, You got there by what you eat in many cases. Same with diabetes. It's not a metformin deficiency. Um, it's diet habits that dro- uh, drove it. So we have been doing clinical research studies for many years. And, and Dr. Kaliova, who's, who's with us here, is now leading the charge with these incredibly important and groundbreaking research studies that have shown not just the, the power that, that diet changes uh, can have, 
but also how people in their day-to-day lives can actually put them to use. And it's, it has the power of, uh, uh, that you would see with, with medical therapies uh, of many kinds, Tr- tremendous power, and people should really be putting it to work. Now, I hasten to add, this doesn't mean you throw your pills away or cancel your doctor's appointment. There's a role for nutrition. There's a role for medical treatment. But we've been doing this work for a long time. We've had advocacy programs. We've been educating doctors and really making diet, diet and lifestyle uh, central to medical work. And you asked about how people can help us. I, let me actually thank those people who have. Um, a great many people have been donating to support this work and very, very generously. And, and for those of you who are watching, I want to say as a doctor and as president of the Physicians Committee, thank you for um, allowing this work to go forward. And if anybody would like to join this team, uh, if you'd like to donate and support our work, it's pcrm.org slash donate. Um, and you can support the life-saving research, the advocacy programs we have, the work we have to reform medical research. All of that is thanks to the work that, uh, to the, the uh, donations that you have made. And I'm very, very grateful uh, to all of you for doing it. As, as many of you know, I don't take a salary here. I'm donating my time uh, every day, uh, full time to do this work. And I appreciate all of you for, for supporting us in your own life. So, so thank you for that. Again, the link to donate is pcrm.org slash donate, and you can click on a link to do that in the episode notes. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcast or Spotify, go ahead, scroll down, and find that URL right there and give it a click. Let's switch gears now and open up our history books. Let's go all the way back to the year 1918. That was the height of the deadly H1N1 global pandemic. Now, it is believed that one-third of the entire world's population became infected. So that's roughly 500 million people at the time. Now, of those 500 million, 50 million are believed to have died. That's one out of every 10 are believed to have died. But in those dire circumstances came some very enlightening revelations. Researchers examined a special group of people who were exposed to the virus. And the headlines that were published regarding that research afterward read 90 patients, no deaths, none very sick. So that begs the question, what is going on there? And for that, we turn to Dr. Hanna Kaliova. Dr. Kaliova, I want to turn to you now. We've referenced the year 1918 on a couple of occasions. The Physicians Committee hasn't been around quite that long. But nonetheless, (laughs) this was a very momentous year in terms of us really gaining an understanding about global pandemics. That was the year of the H1N1 pandemic. And I understand that you have recently spent a lot of time looking back at what occurred more than a century ago, and you may have stumbled on a very interesting link, something that we've really known for more than a century now, but is is not yet getting discussed. Thank you, Chuck. Yeah, exactly. When we are looking for solutions for the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, there are some important lessons uh, from the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918 uh, to 1919. 
Uh, although um, there are some differences between the, the two of them, uh, the COVID-19 seems to be spreading more quickly, uh, but the mortality rates seem to be lower. Uh, both of these are respiratory uh, infections caused by a virus, and uh, the, the human population um, hasn't developed any pre-existing immunity against those. Uh, so um, let's look into uh, the similarities. I'll share my screen with you and start the presentation. Can you see the screen? We absolutely can. And if you're listening back to this on Apple Podcast or on Spotify, please know that we have posted this presentation in its entirety over at pcrm.org slash podcast. You can also find a link to it directly in the show notes for this episode. So what are the lessons that we can learn from the Spanish flu pandemic? Um, the Spanish flu was the H1N1 influenza that lasted for more than a year, from 1918 to 1919. Um, uh, about one-third of that world's population was affected, uh, and uh, 50 million deaths uh, are estimated. Um, Something special about the Spanish flu was that not only elderly population was affected, but also the population in the productive age between 20 and 40 years. And we are still looking into uh, the factors that may have uh, played a role. Um, when, when looking into the Spanish flu, uh, there's an interesting report uh, that I found uh, that I found fascinating. Uh, it reads, Seminary Cinches Flu, Hutchinson Institution makes a record combating disease. 120 exposed, 90 patients, no deaths, none very sick. Let's read the article, which is super short. On the authority of Dr. Fred Shepard, a health officer of Hutchinson City, it may be stated that no public institution in the state of Minnesota has up to date made a record in handling influenza, the worldwide epidemic that has swept millions into their graves, like that to the, to the credit of the Hutchinson Seventh-day Adventist Seminary. The seminary, with 120 of its 180 students and teachers housed under one roof, which is a complete disaster, of course, for a pandemic, and that's why we have social distancing, right, um, to avoid uh, quick spreading like this, uh, was invaded by the malady three weeks ago. Uh, symptoms of the malady developed with some 90 of these. And under the direction of Dr. Larson, a graduate physician, member of the seminary faculty, every person showing indication of sickness was at once put to bed with a trained nurse taking temperature and watching for symptoms of, of the epidemic. If those symptoms developed, the patient was required to remain in bed. There were no drugs to be given, but with complete rest, and quiet, when a carefully regulated diet, uh, which we know was a plant-based diet uh, based on uh, grains, um, fruits, vegetables, and nuts, and fomentations, that hot, that's hot towels, applied to the throat, chest, and abdomen. 
This treatment in almost every case reduced the temperature of patients and in a day or so uh, they were apparently well. Uh, one reason why the mortality uh, from Spanish flu uh, was so high in the population and in the productive age um, may be the use of aspirin uh, to reduce the temperature, uh, which might have um, impaired the immune response, uh, but also masked the symptoms uh, and that's why people were not staying in bed and getting the rest they needed. They might have um, dealt with the uh, with the infection belatedly. Uh, so it seems like getting enough bed rest uh, was one of the crucial um, components. Uh, but a plant-based diet was not only able to help them overcome the viral infection, uh, but was also addressing uh, boosting the immune system in other ways and also addressing the underlying chronic diseases that might have been present. Um, but that did not end the matter with them. The next danger was that of relapse. The guard against this every patient was required to remain in bed from two to five days after apparent full recovery according to the state of their flu affliction. As a result of this system of handling a disease that is scoring thousands of victims every day, there has not been one case that could have been called serious or a single death in the seminary, although there were more than 90 persons affected. The record uh, is remarkable. It makes the ordinary method of, of dealing with the flu appear irrational. And we thank, we are indeed thankful to God for his protecting care and for the untiring efforts of Sister Knudsen, our seminary nurse, and for the assistance of the other nurses and helpers. The hydrotherapy treatments under the blessings of God are indeed helpful, as is recognized by this article. Well, Dr. Kaliova, let me, let me jump in here for a second. This article, again, was published in December of 1918. So this is many, many years ago. Uh, and although the coronavirus COVID-19, the pandemic that we're currently going through, it is far too new to have a full grasp of effective treatments and uh, nutrition, but one can certainly draw a parallel based off of what you have unearthed with this article and what that research showed back then with the importance of eating the plant-based diet, correct? That's correct. Uh, so in the report, uh, there seem to be three um, key components uh, of the treatment. The first is a plant-based diet. Uh, the, the second one is bed rest and getting enough sleep. And the third one was hydrotherapy as a way of um, handling the fever. Uh, so we can, we can look into all of these components. Uh, but let me also say um, that even this report is no guarantee that if we follow these instructions exactly to the T, we will not get the coronavirus or we will not get any complications. Uh, I also found another report that was comparing this approach uh, with an approach from the U.S. military. 
and the comparison is pretty remarkable as well. Uh, we can see that in the U.S. Army, um, there was getting better outcomes uh, than in the rest of the country. Uh, about 17.7% um, of the ones that were afflicted, afflicted by influenza developed pneumonia, and 6.7% died uh, of influenza. Uh, while in the Adventist sanitariums, uh, the risk of developing pneumonia was seven times lower, and the risk of death was five times lower. So, again, a plant-based diet in combination with handling the fever and getting enough rest um, was also uh, contributing to, to much better outcomes on a larger scale, not only in one institution, but these are outcomes from 10 sanitariums uh, in, in the U.S., from, from, from the same time period. That's pretty remarkable research. Uh, I think that a lot of people watching this right now may be wondering, well, we hear so much about a plant-based diet being anti-inflammatory. Is there a connection between inflammation and respiratory diseases? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it has been um, shown that vegetarians have lower inflammatory markers uh, like C-reactive peptide, CRP. Um, so definitely a plant-based diet seems to be anti-inflammatory. But there's also other components that go into this. Let me just uh, review briefly the hydrotherapy and handling the fever. Um, this was the only method back back then before aspirin uh, came to the market, um, and it seems to be uh, an effective way how to in, how to boost the immune system even today. Uh, while handling fever with hot towels over the chest uh, was important to boost the immune uh, cells and the white blood cells uh, locally and increase the temperature locally. Um, when we are not sick, um, the opposite is true. Uh, taking cold showers uh, may boost our immune system. And a randomized clinical trials in the Netherlands has shown that taking cold, short, brief cold showers every day may reduce uh, our, the sickness absences by 29%. So um, that's hydrotherapy. We can use water um, to prevent illness uh, and also to treat it. Uh, another important um, component uh, was also getting enough, enough rest and enough sleep. Uh, one uh, randomized clinical trial uh, that included 25 healthy young men uh, who, were, um, who got their flu shot uh, randomized them into one half of the men were sleep deprived, were getting only four hours uh, of sleep a night versus normal sleep. And the antibody titers were less than half in sleep-deprived men. Um, and we uh, produce antibodies against viral infections either after vaccination or when we encounter the virus. 
So it doesn't make any any big difference. Obviously, we want to be able to uh, produce as many antibodies as possible. So it seems like getting enough sleep um, is one of the crucial components uh, in our lifestyle, what we can do uh, to boost our immune system and its ability to um, defend us against the viral infections. Another study uh, was in 153 healthy men and women um, and the, the study was tracking the sleep duration and efficiency um, measured as the amount of time actually asleep when you're in bed and also how refreshed you feel in the morning. And the, the researchers administered a rhinovirus into their nose and they were following the, the study participants for a few days. Um, those who were reporting um, shorter duration of sleep, less than seven hours, were three times more likely to develop cold than those who were sleeping eight hours or more. And those with a low sleep efficiency were 5.5 times more likely to develop cold versus those who reported an efficient sleep. So that was hydrotherapy, getting enough rest, and now we're uh, getting into the plant-based diet part. Why well, would a plant-based uh, diet? Can yeah. I jump in there for one second Please. there? I, you know, it's, I think a lot of us are seeing that and say, well, less than seven hours. I feel like I'm doing pretty good if I get five or six. And <laughs> so we really do need that full eight hours sleep, it, it, it appears. Yeah, one in three Americans is sleep deprived. So this is a message that we need to hear. No kidding. This is the knowledge that we need to implement. Uh, and uh, let's jump into the plant-based diet. Why would a plant-based diet uh, improve your immune function? Um, uh, before, before we go forward, let me just yeah. jump in real, real quick, um, if, you, if you don't mind, just um, because I, I think it's important for people to understand that these, I think these findings from 102 years ago are, are fascinating. Um, and yet at the same time, it's important that we acknowledge this was not a randomized clinical trial. Um, and this was simply an observation. Um, we, it also was not the same virus. It wasn't COVID-19. It was influenza A. Um, so we, had, we really don't know if this is going to apply to COVID-19. We can't really be sure of that. Um, and especially, I, I want people to not, I'm, I'm sure nobody would think that this doesn't mean we don't do all of the normal precautions, um, like hand washing and social distancing. These things are as important as ever. And if a person's sick, you need medical care just as much as ever. Um, so with, with those cautions, I would say that nonetheless, there, these um, findings were quite remarkable because the similarities are also very important. This was a viral illness to which humans hadn't been, they hadn't had prior exposure. So they had really no immunity. And that's why these conditions were so devastating. I mean, the one in 1918 and the one that we have now in 2020. Um, and we, the fact of the matter is we don't have a treatment for it. Um, all the treatments we have are, are um, supportive. So a person... People back then had the same tools that we have now. Um, the difference, perhaps, is that diets at that time um, were, in many ways, much simpler. Um, and there were people who had meaty diets, and then in the Adventist seminary, they just, for whatever reason of their own, religious reasons, I guess, said, that's not what we're going to have. And they had these very simple diets of vegetables and fruits and so forth with none of the junk that people are eating now. And so as a result, it, it, it was associated with a much better outcome. Uh, we can't say was it was a cause and effect. Was it something else? Who knows? But um, as reluctant as, as a person, I think, should be 
to simply take these findings on face value. I don't think we should. At the same time, I think it's a mistake to just discount uh, things like this and see, is there a lesson in there that we could learn and could test today? So anyway, with that preface, um, back to you, Hannah, about the, the modern science of nutrition and, and immunity. Thank you, Neil. Um, so is there any science on um, plant-based nutrition and immune system and viral infections? Uh, one randomized clinical trial that included 83 healthy volunteers uh, in the, at the age of 65 to 85 uh, compared a low fruit and vegetable intake, less or equal to two portions a day, uh, with a high fruit and vegetable intake, uh, five portions a day or more. Uh, and they were following the participants for, for 16 weeks. At week 12, uh, the participants got their tetanus shot and also their Pneumovax vaccine. And uh, it's remarkable uh, that the uh, antibodies, uh, that, that the antibody production was almost twice um, higher in those uh, with a high fruit and vegetable consumption. And again, you pr produce antibodies um, after a shot, but also when you actually encounter the virus. So you want your antibody production to be as high as possible. Uh, so fruit and vegetable consumption seems to be crucial. Why is that? Uh, we've known for um, many years that antioxidants like vitamin C, for example, is able to boost our immune system and its ability to produce uh, antibodies. Uh, but I also discovered um, another mechanism, and that's nit nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is a signaling molecule that's produced within our body, um, and uh, it's produced by an enzyme that's called intrinsic nitric oxi ox oxide synthase. And it has many beneficial effects in, in our body, uh, mainly cardiovascular um, and interestingly, it has also inhibitory effects on some virus infections, including influenza. Uh, and uh, our intrinsic nitric oxide synthase is upregulated during an infection. And interestingly, the, this enzyme inhibits the replication cycle of uh, the coronavirus specifically. So the nitric oxide is toxic to uh, the, the coronavirus. And now, are there any ways how we can uh, boost the production of nitric oxide? Uh, are there any foods that may help increase the nitric oxide uh, synthesis in our body? Uh, the answer is yes. All fruits and vegetables do that. They increase our nitric oxide synthesis. However, some, uh, some foods uh, do it more efficiently than others. So dark uh, leafy greens uh, do it more efficiently. So arugula and um, spinach and uh, red beets and lettuce, um, all these are super beneficial for your nitric oxide uh, synthesis and will boost your uh, immune functions even even better than, than other foods. So this is something we can all do, include the leaf, leafy greens on an everyday basis. 
And it seems that some foods uh, may also have antiviral properties. Uh, one study uh, that was a randomized clinical trial and included 146 participants uh, compared a garlic supplement, 180 milligrams of allicin that corresponds to about two to three cloves of garlic a day to placebo and was following the participants for 12 weeks. And this study showed uh, that garlic um, reduced uh, the risk of getting common cold about three times and also reduced the sick days three times compared to placebo. Uh, and so it seems like, uh, again, um, it's not against coronavirus. Uh, this is against common cold. So it seems to be working well against viral infections in general. We don't know exactly if it's going to protect us uh, against coronavirus specifically. Uh, but there seem to be some antiviral properties in some foods. One of them is garlic. There's also some research on ginger and resveratrol that's in grapes and peanuts and strawberries and blueberries. Uh, so it seems like some, uh, some plant foods have uh, the ability to protect us against viral infections even more effectively. And uh, it's important to note that most of the, uh, the, the pandemics and the super flus uh, occur during winter months when we get less sun exposure. Uh, so it's important to think about our vitamin D supplementation which has been widely recommended. However, 95% of Americans are vitamin D deficient. So this is something we need to think about. Vitamin D prevents acute respiratory tract infections. Uh, and a meta-analysis of 25 randomized clinical trials um, has shown that uh, vitamin D reduces the risk of respiratory tract infections by 12%. Uh, so if you don't get enough sunlight, um, get enough vitamin D from your supplement. Can I jump in there and uh, ask uh, either you, Dr. Barnard, or you, Dr. Kaliova? I know that uh, at least one listener recently has written in and asked about vitamin D. Uh, apparently, there's been some controversy about vitamin D supplementation uh, of late. Have either of you heard of this, the controversy? I'm happy to jump in, and then Hannah, you might have some other things. I, 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 wish, I should say that vitamin D has always been controversial um, because it's a, it's a fat-soluble vitamin, meaning um, like other fat-soluble vitamins, you can overdose on it and it could hurt you. Um, if you had too much of it, it could theoretically kill you. Um, eventually, although you'd have to really work at it. Um, but what that has meant is that doctors have long debated about what's the right amount. Um, how, and its natural source is sunlight. Um, and if you're not if people aren't getting regular sunlight, which most people are not, um, then supplementing up to about 2,000 international units a day, most doctors would say that's okay. But that number has been very controversial. Um, the risks of it uh, are, are, are controversial. At what point is too much um, going to be a problem? Um, is testing appropriate? And I think, um, Dr. Calio, you're the expert on this, but my guess is that most people would say that testing is appropriate, despite the fact that almost everybody comes out low, and so people tend not to believe the test. My sense is that testing is, is worthwhile, and that if, if people are low, that it is useful to, to supplement. And there are probably uh, a couple of benefits. The main benefit is that vitamin, or the, the benefit people know about, is it helps you absorb calcium from your foods. 
It also seems to have an anti-cancer effect, although that remains controversial too. The evidence for it is not slam dunk, but it looks like uh, higher vitamin D levels reduce uh, cancer risk some. And then adding on to this, the idea that there might be um, some immune boosting and an antiviral effect um, is new, um, needs to be explored more just as, as all of these things. But at the same time, um, the evidence there is certainly intriguing. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, most people will get some benefits from the supplements, uh, and you can all, always uh, check your levels during your regular checkup. Uh, it's a good vitamin to check. And you know, it, it should be said. I think uh, if this was kind of um, implicit in your question, Chuck, everything that we're talking about here. Um, whether it's resveratrol or garlic or anything, we're, we at the Physicians Committee are not selling any of these things. We don't. We're not necessarily clear on what is even uh, on 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 whether these are beneficial or not. I think as Dr. Kelly always said very clearly, this is not COVID research. These are people who have been looking at other viruses over time. They've taken time to test them, to test various things, and bring forward this evidence is simply an important way to look at what might be helpful against COVID. So if you're already washing your hands and you're already socially distancing, you're thinking, what the heck else can I do? Because so many people are doing those things, they're still getting sick. The question is, will my diet help? And the answer is, we don't know. Um, but there is plenty of reason to think that diet does affect at least some viruses, the common cold virus, the influenza virus, other kinds of viruses. So let's, let's, let's test these because if there's a way that we can reduce what doctors would call the mortality and the morbidity, that means the sickness and death that comes from these things, if foods could help, um, we want to make sure that, that we are not neglecting that possibility and are at least talking about what we know and hopefully encouraging people to, uh, researchers to test these things. Dr. Kaliova, is there anything else with your presentation that you'd like to add? Uh, yeah, I completely agree with Dr. Barnard. And, uh, you know, the case mortality is only uh, 0.9% in those who don't have any comorbidities for coronavirus. However, it's 10.5% for those who have cardiovascular disease. So um, the the benefit of um, adopting a plant-based diet right now is not only to protect yourself against the, the coronavirus, um, you know, which we don't know exactly how much it will help you, but it's uh, it's even more uh, helping you to address the underlying uh, disease, uh, and this way it may help you even even more in the long term. Wild, isn't it? All the way back to 1918. And that kind of reminds me of another article that I stumbled across. And this one dates all the way back to 1907, so more than 10 years earlier than that even. And the headline for that particular article was, Cancer Increasing Among Meat Eaters. That's in 1907. Some 113 years ago. Now, not saying that that has anything to do with the ability to fight off viruses and certainly not anything to do with this current COVID-19 pandemic, but it does show how long that we have known about the connection between our health and our diet. It's something to think about. Moving on now, Dr. Barnard and Dr. Kaliova, they are here now to answer a ton of your questions. 
about nutrition and COVID-19. But before we get there, let's get some insight from Dr. Barnard on when we might see the virus peak in the U.S. Dr. Barnard, before we open things up for viewer questions, um, I understand that you have been kind of figuring out when this virus may be peaking and where geographically speaking. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Um, yes, um, there, there are good data now. They're from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, which is at the University of Washington. And what they have been looking at is different geographical areas, different geographic areas and where the virus is peaking. As you know, it's hitting New York very hard. And we believe that the peak um, really medical usage um, when most people are sick and you've got the most beds uh, occupied and so forth, we think that's going to be April 9th. Um, we're going to revise that um, or the uh, at University of Washington, that, that uh, estimate will be revised, but it looks like it's a little more than a week away. Now in California, it's about three weeks behind. It looks like it's about um, April 27th is the predicted date. Um, but here's why, that, here's why that matters. You're seeing this tsunami coming toward you. Now's maybe a good time to get a life preserver. Um, and so as Dr. Kaliova mentioned, speaking and, and thinking just about, simply about the vulnerabilities. People who have heart disease, people who have lung disease, people with hypertension or diabetes. These are the conditions that make you especially vulnerable if this virus gets into your life. So let's say you're in Los Angeles and you're listening to us now. You've got four weeks from today. Um, if you follow a healthy diet, we don't know if it's going to have any effect against the virus. We really don't know. I mean, uh, Dr. Kelly presented some intriguing information. We hope it's helpful, but we don't know. But we do know this for sure. If you've got diabetes, your diet choices today will affect your diabetes. And if your diabetes is in poor control, you are, you are throwing out a welcome mat for a worse prognosis in this condition, according to the best data we have in CDC. So let's get our diabetes under control. We've got four weeks. So what would I do? Um, if a person is, is not yet emphasizing vegetables in their diet, let's do it. Vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, bring those front and center. Throw out the, the, the animal products. And to tell you the truth, I would favor really being particularly cautious about dairy products because we've seen evidence that I think could be regarded as incomplete, but still worrisome. The dairy products seem to worsen asthma and other respiratory conditions, which, which this is a respiratory disease. Um, so you've got four weeks. You're in California. Let's follow a healthy diet. Throw out the animal products. Keep the oils really low. Let's see if our diabetes and high blood pressure can get under the best uh, control that they can be so that when that peak hits, we are somewhat less vulnerable. Will it work? We don't know, but we know that all the side effects are good ones. Um, we, well, we do know that it works with blood pressure and diabetes. We don't know the extent to which it will make the COVID-19 course better. But there's every reason to change your diet now and to see if you can strengthen yourself and your family. Dr. Barnard, let me ask you this. One of the crown jewels of the Physicians Committee, um, one of the things that I'm most particular, uh, particularly proud of is our 21-day vegan kickstart. And so people think, well, how much can I, how much good can I possibly do in just four weeks? Well, our 21-day kickstart obviously is three weeks. Can you talk about some of the turnarounds you've seen specific to diabetes in that time frame? Um, sure. Um, if we see this all the time. We've worked with thousands of people in research studies. Typical case, typical case, a person comes in, they might be overweight, they've got diabetes, and you've got a whole package of other problems. Your cholesterol is higher than it should be, your blood pressure is higher, and you're on more medications than you wish you were taking. So let's say a person says, I'm diving in the deep end, give me the healthiest diet possible. We will remove all the animal products from their diet. It'll be a vegan diet, 
Um, you don't have to have a taste for folk music. It's just a vegan diet, <laughs> just healthy plant-based foods. Um, and we're going to throw out the animal products, keep oils low, uh, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and beans. Do supplement with vitamin B12. You need it for healthy nerves and healthy blood. On day two, uh, the person starts to feel like, okay, this is diet's a little awkward, but not too bad. And then day three, they're, they're noticing, okay, I think I'm getting, you know, I'm getting the hang of this. It's, it doesn't take a long time. And by about day four or five or six, people will call us up and say, this is amazing. My blood, my blood sugar is starting to drop. Um, everybody gets a different effect. Um, but very often it starts dropping and it starts to drop very fast, which is why we encourage people to stick with their regular doctor to ratchet them back on their insulin or sulfonylurea doses because the diet is powerful and it will reduce their blood, blood pressure. Uh, I'm sorry, blood sugar and blood pressure too, but they reduce their blood sugar quite quickly. Um, then if you check them about maybe a month later, you'll definitely find reductions in cholesterol for many of these people. You'll see incremental drops in blood pressure, although for many people it takes a longer period of time to see those things. The point I'm making is that all of these changes occur quite rapidly from beginning within the first week or so. The changes initially are small, but they grow and can become quite impressive. You'll lose weight, your blood sugar comes down, your blood pressure comes down, your lipids get better. Um, and for many people, their asthma gets better. That might take a few weeks or several weeks uh, or even a couple of months, but there's no reason not to do this kind of diet. It's benign and healthy and for many people, very powerful. Yeah, and so often on the audio version of the podcast, I always reference, you know, I ask people to share it before uh, the, the life-changing and potentially even life-saving information. And that 21-day Kickstart, that is a free app that we have developed that people can follow. You can go get it in uh, your Apple Play Store or on uh, Android devices. Really, it's right there. It's also on PCRM.org. And that kind of goes to the importance and underscores uh, why we need your support right now because it really is helping make the life of someone one, even your own, that much healthier. And Dr. Barnard asked earlier to go to pcrm.org slash donate to give what you can right now, and, and we would certainly appreciate that. Um, can um, I also just say, if you don't mind, Chuck, um, I want people to reach out to the Spanish-speaking community as well, um, historically often neglected by um, providers of medical care. Um, the, the 21 Day Vegan Kickstart is also has a, a really great Spanish language version. So, um, Please check that out. Check out for your family members. If you're a, a clinician seeing patients day to day on a day to day basis, please give them that app. It's free. We're not selling anything. Um, and it's for many people just life changing information. It holds your hand through the diet chain. PCRM.org slash donate. If you could do that right now, that would be great. Uh, we're going to open the field up for questions right now. So if you have one, go ahead and post it in the comments section below. We'll get to as many as we can with the time that we have remaining. Um, I want to start with the question from Alexandra. I think that this is something that uh, so many people are struggling with right now. Uh, Dr. Barnard, uh, Alexandra writes, my diet has been whole food plant-based for two and a half years and for the most part, very healthy. But in the last few weeks, Weeks, I've been stress eating a lot more junk food. Might that be putting me in danger even after such a short period of time? Yeah, I think, I think it will. Um, and that may not be the answer you want, but I think so. Um, you can have been following a healthy diet. Um, but yes, uh, when a person deviates from that to uh, very rapidly, you can find weight coming back. You can find your cholesterol can start to come up. Um, the good news is this, this is a two-way street. If you recognize uh, maybe the days have been a little dark and cloudy sometimes, you're indoors, um, your, your mood is kind of coming down, you're compensating by, 
by eating. And if you're under house arrest, which most people are under right now, your refrigerator is a lot closer than it used to be. Um, this is a good time to set some rules and get back to a healthy diet. Dr. Kaliofa, I'm going to ask this question to you. This comes from Kevin on Facebook. I know that you and I have discussed the gut microbiome on the show on a couple of occasions. Uh, Kevin writes in that he recently had an infection and had to take an antibiotic. He's wondering what recommendations you have to improve his gut microbiome after he finishes the course of antibiotics. That's an excellent question. A healthy microbiome uh, is one of the main barriers uh, against getting uh, infections like uh, like flus or like respiratory infections as well because we know that the mouth is one of the uh, entrances for the virus, right? So a healthy microbiome uh, is really a, a key component here. Uh, now, um, we can promote a healthy microbiome in two ways. Uh, either we can um, get a lot of fermented foods that contain the bacteria that we are trying to get into our gut. However, most of these bacteria will um, be destroyed in our stomach by, by the acid that's there. Uh, so only a small portion of these bacteria will reach the gut. Um, so if you, if you like sauerkraut or plant-based yogurts, you will get some of the beneficial bacteria. Uh, but if you think you're doing something for your health and then, you know, eat uh, a cheeseburger on the top, you, you will promote the, the growth of the unhealthy bacteria and you will override the effects of fermented foods. Uh, so fermented foods have only... Um, some additional effect on our gut microbiome. What seems to be crucial is oligosaccharides um, that are the food for the bacteria that, that are the good guys in our gut and that feed upon fiber. Uh, so um, fiber is in all plant foods and oligosaccharides uh, are most prevalent in whole grains, garlic and onions, uh, to name just a few. But you know, in, in all uh, plant foods, you have, you have fiber that will feed the good bacteria in your gut. And these will uh, produce the short-chain fatty acids that have many beneficial effects on, on your cardiovascular health, on your insulin sensitivity. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, it, it promotes uh, your immune function as well. So this is an excellent question and a healthy plant-based diet will promote a healthy gut microbiome and you don't need the fermented foods as a necessary uh, component, but it's, it's optional and you can include those as well. Dr. Barnard, this one comes to you. It's from Laura on Facebook. She writes, I used to be plagued with UTIs and continued to suffer with bladder pain as a vegetarian. But when I gave up dairy, I found that my bladder pain practically vanished. I would love to know what dairy does to the bladder or if it's possible to get E. coli from dairy products. What do you know? Um, dairy products come from a, a live animal. Um, as you know, um, and despite the fact that they're pasteurized, pasteurization doesn't eliminate bacteria. It just um, reduces the count a lot. Um, and uh, so there are bacteria that are, that are in milk. However, I'm going to hazard a guess that the, the UTIs that, that the person may have had probably do not come from that source. Um, the researchers have, and I, we might have even discussed this on a previous episode, I think, uh, researchers have looked at 
uh, bacteria that cause urinary tract infections. You can do a, what, what I'm going to call a genetic fingerprint of the bacterium, and you can then try to match it with other sources. Where did the bacteria come from? Did they come from infected beef or pork or whatever? And in 70 or 80% of these cases, they seem to come from poultry. Um, chicken seem to be the, the source. Um, so what's the role of dairy? Um, the role of dairy, if there is one, um, I would hazard a guess that it's what Dr. Kaliova was talking about, which is that your gut microbiome, um, that happens to be where these infectious E. coli are now parking. They're uh, socializing and failing to socially distance from all of your other microbiome. In other words, you've got healthy gut bacteria, you've got plenty of unhealthy gut bacteria as well. The more cheese and meat you're eating, uh, or let's say you're a vegetarian, but you're doing a lot of dairy, that's going to change that bacterial population that might favor the growth of the unhealthy bacteria that are ultimately going to cause the problem. That doesn't mean that a dairy-borne bacterium caused it. What it means is that they're favoring, that they're changing the gut environment to favor the growth of unhealthy bacteria. Dr. Barnard, I'm going to stick with you. This one comes from Megan. She writes that she's experiencing mild COVID symptoms and was told by the state to quarantine. She's wondering if you have any advice for her. Um, the state was right. Um, it's good. To, if you have symptoms, most uh, doctors are now suggesting that you not go to the hospital if the symptoms are mild. By, by mild symptoms, I'm referring to a cough, a low-grade fever, um, body aches, fatigue, that kind of stuff. Um, but where people start to get nervous is if you're, you're actually having trouble breathing or the fever gets really very high. Um, those, are, those are the times when a person's got to go and, and, and seek uh, medical care. But if the symptoms are mild, most people will say, um, stay home, take care of yourself. And the reason for that is they don't have a treatment that they're going to offer you at the hospital. The, the, the hospital treatment is supportive treatment to make sure that you don't de decompensate further. This one comes from Kathy. Dr. Barnard, we'll stay with you again. Should we wear face masks in public or no? I know that there's been a lot of debate about this one. Um, that may change. For, for right now, the medical advice is no. And part of the reason is that people don't know how to use them. Um, people kind of put them on and they fall off. And, you know, um, can you hear me now? And they, you know, they're adjusting it all the time. They're bringing bacteria up to their nose and mouth. Um, and then the, there's a little wire piece on it that is supposed to fit carefully around your nose. And people kind of ignore that or they have it upside down or, or whatever. And so it's really cosmetic and it doesn't actually do much good and you're handling it so much it becomes um, probably a fomite in and of itself. Um, uh, now, now that may change uh, because we're learning more and more about this bacterium and it does appear to be airborne at least momentarily. And so if a person is wearing this very well and you're in the presence of other people who are infected, you'd have to think theoretically it's going to uh, provide a barrier between you and them. Uh, where the use is, I think, pretty slam dunk clear is that if you have the infection, you have it yourself. Um, you're quarantined at home. You're waiting for time. That's a pretty good time to actually put on that mask um, so that you're not coughing it all around the place. You're containing it more. So anyway, stay tuned. We're learning about this virus day by day, by day but the current, the current evidence, don't, don't wear a mask now unless you're actually infected. We have time for a few more questions, so if you have one, go ahead and post it in the comment section below. Dr. Kaliova, this one comes to you from Allison. She writes, do the garlic and ginger studies discuss whether all forms deliver the same benefits? Are powdered forms as beneficial as whole forms? Right. This, this is an excellent question. We don't have as many studies on these. So the studies have been done with extracts. 
uh, it seems that the garlic uh, that was supplemented in the form of uh, capsules that you can buy in a pharmacy store uh, works at least as well as uh, as the raw garlic uh, and uh, the same the same for ginger. Uh, we don't have a head-to-head comparison, but we know that the extracts uh, work well, uh, and we believe that the that the raw ginger and uh, garlic would work as well. You know, I, I have to say, Chuck and 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 Dr. Kalyova, I have been personally a really a skeptic of these um, studies um, because I thought, well, somebody's trying to sell something. You you see it with turmeric and everything else. Um, you know, somebody's trying to sell their product, or they got their sort of favorite spice. Um, that comes from that they grew up with, and they want to make a case for it. Um, and so I've been—I have to say—I've been skeptical of these, and I, and I still am to a degree. That said, um, when you look at the garlic studies, they're actually quite good. Um, I think they've been rather well done, um, and, and they, they seem to be by people who are really trying to um, match the the active ingredient, which is allicin, A L L I C I N, um, and really to to see what dose works. Um, and there have been so many of these studies that it's, it's impressive. With ginger, um, I'm not yet convinced on it. But with, with garlic, there does seem to be something. And I don't think it's just because everyone stays more than six feet away from you when you've had a couple of cloves of garlic. That could be part of it. But I, I, don't, think, <laughs> I don't think that's all of it. It's an easy way to social distance. Uh, Dr. Bronner, this from Sarah. She wants to know, do you have any suggestions for handling groceries, especially produce? Should we wash them with soap once we're back at the house? Uh, I hate to say it, probably so, yes. Pain, pain in the neck, but yeah, probably so. All right. Uh, from Vincent, Dr. Kaliofa, you can uh, chime in on this one. What foods would you recommend to buy while quarantined that last a long time? Uh, so the, the good staple foods uh, to stock up on uh, is rice and beans uh, that will last you a long time. Uh, some vegetables also uh, will... Uh, last longer than others, like for example, carrots will last longer than tomatoes, for example, or apples will last longer um, than strawberries. Uh, so make sure that you hit all the categories, um, grains and legumes and fruits and vegetables and a small amounts of nuts and seeds. Uh, and you can find some longer lasting foods out of all these food groups. Dr. Bronner, do you have any uh, other suggestions there? You know, I, I, th- I think that I think that's exactly right. If you get dried beans, two years from now they are still going to be fine. You know, the same as dried rice, fine. You know, they won't last forever, but they do last a really long time. Uh, frozen vegetables work pretty well. They can get freezer burned um, after a while, but they'll last a pretty good long time. Canned vegetables, the nutrition isn't perfect, but it beats the heck out of you know canned spam. So um, canned vegetables can be okay. Um, and then when it comes to fruit, there aren't, there aren't a lot of them that are packed in, in cans for a long time, but there are some. Um, you can get canned peaches and applesauce and things like that. So um, if you're outfitting your, your survival shelter, um, those are good things, things to have on hand. Uh, don't forget your vitamin B12. You need it for healthy nerves, healthy blood. Get the smallest pill that you can buy at the, the drugstore or the, the health food store. The amount you need is 2.4 micrograms per day. All the pills have more than that. Just get the smallest one and have that on hand. 
And uh, I actually know uh, little birdie told me that uh, pretty soon you're going to be posting a video, Dr. Barnard, of some pantry staples. So look for that uh, online very soon as well. Final question. It comes from Ella on Instagram. Uh, Dr. Barnard, she wants to know if you unfortunately catch COVID-19, do you develop immunity to it? Um, best guess, yes. Um, right. Uh, so, so that means that all the people who have had it, presumably they are not vulnerable to catching it again. However, um, if, if this is you or if this is somebody you know, be careful about all of this. Um, this is the first go around with this disease and we are really learning as we go. One of the things that can happen is a person gets the disease, they get pretty sick, they start to recover and they're feeling fine. This is not the time to go out dancing. This is the time, as Dr. Kaliova mentioned from 1918, what did they do to those people? They had them rest in bed. Now, I know it sounds like the most primitive treatment of all, but when you rest in bed, you do two things. Number one, you're guarding your body. You're allowing your energy to not get depleted. Um, plus, you are by yourself. You are not there infecting other people. Um, so with COVID, we have seen people who have gotten better. Um, and then after a couple of days, they get worse again. Um, so let that run its course. Um, but then presumably when a person has been genuinely symptom-free for several days, it does appear that they are no, going to be no longer infective and they are going to um, have some uh, immunity. How long that lasts, we do not know. And keep in mind, as we were talking at the beginning, this virus is very likely going to mutate. Um, so it may be that we need to acquire immunity again. It, it, some of the pro projections are that it will not mutate as rapidly as influenza A. I hope that's the case. Um, but let's be very cautious about this. You, we've got to do all the public health measures that we have learned about, plug a healthy diet in, in as well, um, and uh, let's see what we can do to keep our families safe. Just a couple of housekeeping things before we say goodbye for the day. Um, from the bottom of my heart and for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I just wanted to take time to say thank you uh, for making the exam room the top-rated uh, nutrition podcast in all of the U.S. Um, that is just the most humbling thing in the entire world, and it is such a privilege to be able to bring this information to you uh, on now uh, two and three times a week. Uh, we've been very busy of late, but thank you guys so very much for your support of that podcast, and please continue sharing it with your friends and your family so that they can learn along with you because the information that is shared on this show has really changed uh, so many lives, helped people improve their health just exponentially and the feedback that we have received from people who have done that is just remarkable so again from everybody here at the physicians committee thank you thank you thank you from the bottom of our heart and dr barnard from the bottom of my heart thank you for believing in the show you know <laughs> it's been uh, quite a fun two and a half year ride well you have done an incredible job and there, there, there's a reason why this is the number one nutrition podcast in, in the united states so, so congratulations to you for that um, and let me thank all the people who have made this possible um, as, as I said earlier, um, those of you who have donated, it's, it's pcrm.org slash donate. Those of you who have done that and supported uh, the information that we're getting out, thank you so much. If you haven't yet, now's the time to join the team. Please go to pcrm.org slash donate. Um, and any amount, however small or big, makes a huge difference and allows us to continue to bring this life-saving information into your home. Dr. Neil Barnard, Dr. Hanna Kaliova, thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you. If you are able, and I know that these times are difficult for so many of us, but if you are able, 
any little bit that you can give to support our efforts at the Physicians Committee would be so dearly appreciated. They would help to continue our work to educate the public on the existence of these animal markets that are so rife with disease and responsible for the pandemics that we're facing. Of course, also in that work is all of the nutrition education that we are working on to help people live longer and healthier lives. Reverse heart disease, reverse diabetes, lower the risk of cancer. So many things, all of that, we've worked tirelessly here in the office to do to help make the world a healthier place because that is what this is all about. And we need your help to do that. So pcrm.org slash donate. Please support us however much you can. And if you have a question that you would like answered on a future episode of the show, we would love to try to get you an answer. So go ahead and send that in. And the easiest way that you can do that is on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Chuck Carroll WLC, or you can hop on Facebook, go to my page there, hit the like button and send your question right there. Also, the Physicians Committee is on Twitter at PCRM and at Physicians Committee on the gram, just spelled out that time. And please also head over to Apple Podcast or Spotify, wherever podcasts are available. Look for the exam room podcast by the Physicians Committee. When you find it, hit that subscribe button and also leave a five-star review. Because not only will you be getting new episodes automatically, they'll come right to your device, but you will also help us get this information in the hands of someone who truly needs it. Because the more subscriptions and the more good reviews we receive, the higher than we climb in the podcast rankings. And the higher we climb, the easier it is for people to find us. And the easier it is for people to find us, the better their chances of leading a longer and healthier life. This is really potentially life-saving information. So you've gotten us all the way to the number one spot, the number one nutrition podcast in the U.S., according to Chartable. So thank you very much. Let's keep us there. Keep spreading the word, subscribe and leave that great review. So thank you so very much for that and doing your part to help the next person. Now coming up in the near future will be a conversation that I had with Dr. John Pippen, had an opportunity to Skype with him. And this was an interesting discussion about efforts being made to fast track the vaccine for COVID-19. A lot of people are keeping a close eye on this and how some of those efforts have skipped right over the animal testing phase. So what could that mean for the future of drug and vaccine development? That is what Dr. Pippin and I will be talking about. Plus, we will also be speaking with our good friend, Audrey Dunham, just outside of L.A. We're going to find out how she and Jeff and the kids, how all of them are doing during this lockdown. And and she's going to give a little bit of inspiration as well. She's going to be sharing some fun and healthy recipes that you can make to help pass the time and keep everyone sufficiently entertained. Let's get the kids in the kitchen. 
it's good to time as any to show them how to cook healthy meals, right? So we're going to be doing that with Audrey because eating healthy, it is always important, but perhaps even more so now with so many of us stuck at home. It's important that we not just let ourselves go. So we're going to be chatting with Audrey about ways to be healthy, ways to eat healthy, and how to do both of those things while still getting the stamp of approval from the youngsters. But for right now, that's going to wrap things up for us. My thanks again to Drs. Neil Barnard and Hanna Kaliova for their time. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe and keep it plant-based. <laughs>